0: Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics. This week we ask, what are the effects when authoritarian governments ban protests? My name is Alan Renick and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Governments in many countries have powers to authorise or not authorise planned demonstrations. So what are the effects of such decisions? Well, we might think the effects are going to be mainly on whether the demonstrations happen or not, but new research suggests that actually the impacts can be much subtler than that. They influence whether the demonstrators gain public support, which clearly can have lots of knock-on consequences further down the line. The research, which will shortly be published in an article in the journal World Politics, has been carried out in Russia, a country where public attitudes towards those in power are clearly of great interest at the moment. It also has implications for other autocracies, and it might at least raise questions in democracies too, not least as the UK government's powers relating to protests are increased. Well, the article's author is Dr. Katerina Tertichnaya, Associate Professor in Comparative Politics here in the UCL Department of Political Science. Longstanding listeners to UCL Uncovering Politics may recognise Katerina from her previous episodes on the Russian dissident Alexei Navalny and on public opinion in Russia. And I'm delighted to say that Katerina joins me now. Welcome back, Katerina, to UCL Uncovering Politics. It's great that you can join us again. And let's get stuck straight into the work that you've done here. How would you characterize the question that was driving this research?
1: Right, so first of all, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to join the podcast. And so this research, is motivated by the broad observation that in recent years, authoritarian governments have been increasingly using the law in order to compromise their opponent's ability to dissent. For example, we know that autocrats today um, label organizations and individuals as foreign agents and they impose restrictions on who can lawfully participate in politics, be it um, through protest or, or elections. Um, For example, as I write in in the paper, in the short span of about 20 years between the early 2000s and late 2010s, the share of non-democratic regimes that adopted legislation um, that allows the governments to preemptively hinder assembly has increased dramatically. Nevertheless, such restrictions on assembly in general are seldom effective at preventing protest. So... We see over and over again defiant demonstrators taking to the streets even when they have not succeeded at securing uh, protest permits from the authorities. So simply put, the question I ask is whether restrictions on protests dampen or whether they bolster defiant groups' ability to generate mass support. So are defiant demonstrators, and in this case demonstrators who participate in an authorised protest, punished, or are they rewarded for defying obstruction? And that's how I would summarise the question.
0: And what were you expecting to find? So as you say, it seems that these um, restrictions on protests often don't actually prevent protests from taking place which might raise the question well what's the point then of trying to stop the protests but I, I, th- I guess your hunch was that there's something else that the the governments in these autocratic countries may be able to achieve in in terms of public support for the protests so just what was your hunch as to what's going on here?
1: Yes so approaching this question from you know a theoretical perspective, it was possible to generate mixed expectations, right? So, we did not have clear theoretical priors as to um, how the effects would operate. So, would demonstrators be rewarded or would they be punished? On the one hand, it was possible to anticipate that demonstrators who dissent despite obstruction signal, you know, defiance, they signal strength and resolve. And so, they should be rewarded. Uh, for you know, resisting oppression—that that would be one expectation. Another expectation would be that demonstrations, who demonstrators uh, who take who participate in unauthorized protests, show disrespect and disregard for the law, and so they could pay a penalty for that, and the penalty would translate in in loss of support. But of course. It's, the question in political sense is always it depends, right? So those broad expectations could manifest themselves differently in different parts of the population. And I think this is what the paper eventually shows. The effect of um unauthorized uh, protest varies depending on people's prior beliefs about whether the law is legitimate or not, and whether mm, the demonstrators are defying. And lawful legislation
0: or not, and we will get into those findings in a little bit. And presumably, one would also expect there to be an effect depending on the media and how the media report uh, on these demonstrations and the actions of the authorities in relation to the demonstrations.
1: Oh, absolutely. So, so I, w- I was looking, and um, you know, in my response, I was focusing more on heterogeneity um, based on individual characteristics, but. Um, The informational environment in which protests take place and people form opinions is very important for shaping uh, the public's responses to unauthorized protest. And you've hinted on one such factor of the broader environment, and that's, of course, um, media, media freedom and media um, portrayals of demonstrators. Um, The way protests gets framed in, in the press and in the media is one way through which um people evaluate what has happened in the streets and, and form assessments. And as as you very rightly note, Alan, um in non-democratic regimes, um the press is very critical of unauthorized protest, often described as illegal, dangerous, disruptive, and potentially harmful for society.
0: Hmm. It's interesting because one might imagine that an authoritarian government banning protests would want to do it kind of quietly and make sure that there was sort of minimum attention being given to this because one might imagine that banning protests might be thought unpopular, that people might be concerned about restrictions on their freedom. But actually, we often, as you say, we see very um, demonstrative media campaigns around showing that this is what they've done and that therefore the demonstrations are illegal because actually that's part of their um, kind of media strategy and strategy for for painting their opponents in a negative light.
1: Yes. So, well, you're just, um, you know, beautifully summarizing what I call the puzzle of publicized preventive repression. As, as you say, uh, political science scholarship over the years generates the expectation that when dictators engage in preventive repression, um, they should do so in the dark, right? They should not publicize the fact that they are repressing their opponents or that they're stifling dissent or restricting people's ability to act precisely because there are reputational costs to pay. And so approaching this question of protest authorizations um, and decisions being communicated publicly represents a puzzle, as you say. Why is it that contemporary autocrats, not just in Russia but elsewhere as well, publicize the fact that they have restricted assembly, and not just that, but also publicize their failure to effectively prevent demonstrations? As I write in the paper, you know, the Russian authorities will publicize that upcoming protests are unauthorized by um, various ways. For example, they'll put up street banners, and they will make you know, the announcements in the press, they will write about it on social media. And the authorities in Hong Kong, ahead of the anti-elab protests, they would even stage press conferences to let everybody know that upcoming protests were unauthorized and so they should not participate in them. So that, that is very puzzling if you think that all the authorities want to achieve is to prevent the protest from happening. What my research suggests is that sometimes the authorities may actually be very content with the protest going ahead, precisely because one of their aims is to shape opinions towards demonstrators, but also towards themselves.
0: This is so fascinating. We'd better get into the actual research or we're going to be too tempted to discuss the implications of the findings before we have actually talked about how you got to the findings. So um, can you explain for us, uh, given that this was your question, uh, what were the methods that you employed in order to get at this
1: question? Right. So the question was, how how does participation in unauthorized protest influence people's views of demonstrators and of the protest? So I needed two sets of data data on unauthorized protest, and data on public opinion. Approaching this question, um, I realized that we really didn't have extensive systematic data on the occurrence of on the protest and on their characteristics, whether they're authorized or not. And this is a case not just in Russia, right? So we have fantastic protest event catalogs for, for those who study authoritarian politics. And those catalogs document where protests take place, how large the events are, whether the police responded to them with arrests or not. But they don't actually document whether the protests had security authorities approval to go ahead or not. And I felt that this was, you know, um, a limitation we needed to overcome. So the first step to this exercise was to go back in time and collect information or augment existing uh, um, catalogs with information about protest status, whether legal or illegal, Uh, sorry, lawful or lawful authorized or not. And I have to say that um, in doing so, um, it is important to recognize like in collecting the data, I need to recognize the work that human rights organizations um, and non-governmental organizations have done in Russia trying to collect information on power abuses. Um, over the info is one such organization that over the years has tried to collect information on power like the authorities abusing their power and banning demonstrations. so they're, they're very important. Okay, so data authorized protest collected, the next task was to understand how public opinion engages with the protest. And so again, here I was fortunate enough that Russia was for many years a place where scholars could run surveys freely. And so um, the collection of public opinion data was completed. So we're still at the observational part of the study. The task was to combine protest event data and public opinion data to try and understand whether um, the status of protest taking place where people live influences how they think about the demonstrations, right? And that's the first part of the analysis, which in itself took many years to complete, I have to say. But of course, you know, observational data um, come with challenges, right? What I tried to do in this paper is...
0: We should perhaps just explain for listeners what we mean by observational data here. Oh, just to right. Yes,
1: of course. So non-experimental data, as they come in the world. So data on real protest, data on public opinion collected in, in, in a real world setting. So observational often used in contrast with experimental. And and we'll come to the experimental part of the study in a minute. Yep. So, you know, having spent all these years, I'm, I was able to study how the status of protest influences, attitudes towards demonstrators, combining information on protest and public opinion. It was a very neat design, if I'm allowed to say so myself. I was able to focus on a single day of protest, protest on the same topic taking place across Russia. So that allows me to keep many things constant, right? Like um, timing, proximity to elections, uh, demands, et cetera. But of course, a question arises, and that has to do with the endogeneity of um, protest approval patterns and public opinion. So my research showed that support for demonstrators is lower in places where um, demonstrators engage in unauthorized as opposed to authorized protest. But of course, um, the location of protest and their status may not be random. And a, a chief concern for my work was, okay, what if the authorities are more likely to deny permits where they know that the opposition enjoys lower support to start with? I'm not, if, if that is the case, I'm not really capturing the real effect of protest authorizations in public opinion, but some underlying dynamic that shapes whether the protest will be authorized or not to start with.
0: And we should just explain for listeners again that the, the word endogeneity is used basically by political scientists to mean that kind of thing, where there's, there's something in, inside the world that we're not quite observing that is leading to the outcome rather than the thing that you're interested in.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So, so that, that is correct. I and mean, in our case, it would be the concern that um, the location of authorised and unauthorised protests does not necessarily shape by shape public opinion, but is itself shaped by how people feel about the opposition. Yeah. So you know those concerns. I said, like, what do we do? And I think what I was then able to do is design an experiment. You know, and and an experimental design has many many. There are many concerns with how we design the experiments. What how we present them to respondents, how valid they are in the real world, but they're very well suited for addressing this concern that I just discussed, because people who participate in surveys can be randomly distributed, randomly allocated into groups, groups that are otherwise similar. And then we randomly varied information they receive about protest in ways that help us understand how different characteristics shape how people think about about the protest and and about the outcomes of interest.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, so this really is kind of gold standard political science research where you're you're getting the advantages of both observational studies and experimental studies, and you're combining both of these elements uh, in the same paper. So as you've said, observational study, the problem can often be that we can't be sure that the effect is being produced by the causal process that we imagine is it is being produced by. And the experimental study is a great way of... Addressing that by just cutting out the possibility that there are any other background factors um, by using randomization in order to remove those. But at the same time, we sometimes have concerns with experimental studies that you're creating a kind of artificial context in, in the, the question that you write, the question that you, you put to people rather than having a real world context. Uh, for for the study, so there can be questions about whether the effect that you find very clearly in the study would exist in the real world, but the fact that you've got the ob- observational study as well just means that you know we, we just have added confidence that there is something very meaningful going on here
1: absolutely beautifully said
0: <laughs> so wonderful political science research here. what do you find?
1: Yes, so the findings are um... As um, follows. The first thing I find is that, and we hinted to this already, is that support for people who participate in unauthorized protest is lower than support for um, those who participate in protests that have secured the authorities' approval to go ahead. Um, the experiment actually suggests that the penalty demonstrators pay for participating in unauthorized protests is almost as large in magnitude as the penalty they pay when they engage in violence. And this is very important. However, and I think this is one of the most important findings of, of this work. The effects of protest um, authorizations on public opinion, the effects of unauthorized protest on public opinion, are not homogenous across the population. They vary. And they, they vary, they differ, depending on what people already think about the law. right? Because as I said at the beginning, this is legal repression. The authorities use the law uh, to hinder dissent. So what I find in Russia, is that people who think that the law is legitimate, that the law should be obeyed by protest organizers, protest participants, and everyone really are the ones who withdraw support from demonstrators when they find out that they have engaged in unlawful acts of dissent. People who challenge the law, people who, you know, think that the law is an instrument of repression do not withdraw support from demonstrators when they know that demonstrators have engaged in unauthorized as opposed to authorized protest. Mm. Um, And I think this is a very important finding because it also has implications for how far uh, we should anticipate findings to travel beyond Russia, but also within Russia over time. Mm.
0: And you want to develop that thought a little bit further. Uh, just what what are your expectations around the the, the 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 traveling capacity of of these findings?
1: Right. So so let's go back to the the finding about people's beliefs about the law. So we know that in general, you know, going back to David Easton's work, um, legitimacy beliefs, um, such as you know normative support for the law, are changing very slowly, right, as opposed to specific evaluations of how a government may be performing in office, beliefs that, um, you know, the law should be obeyed, or that normative support for the law is a good thing, are slower to change. However, they're not immutable, they they do shift. And they are themselves, people's beliefs about this, the law, endogenous, as, as we discussed, to government action. I guess what my findings suggest is that the more the authorities continue to use the law as an instrument of the of repression, the more the law loses its ability to persuade people's normative support for the law may erode. And what when this happens, um these strategies of legal repression will also lose their effectiveness because they are, to the extent that they're rooted in people's legal beliefs and normative support for the law. And I think that is an important finding. Indeed, in Russia, what we found is that between 2020 and 2021, and this is a period of escalating repressions in Russia, people's normative support for the law declined. There was a lower share of people, a smaller share of people who thought that the law was legitimate in 2021 than it was in 2020. So I think it is a very interesting question whether... Um, abuses of power and the use of the law as an instrument of repression will dampen the law's ability to persuade people Mm. about the undesirability of so-called unlawful tactics.
0: Mm. So your expectation would be that if you were to repeat this kind of study today in Russia, uh, then the findings might be rather different.
1: Russia today is a very different country to, the, to Russia in even 2021 or 2020. Um, we have seen an increase in political repression domestically. Um, protests against the war, but also protests against the authorities have been effectively criminalized. And so parts of the argument are no longer valid in this country. Um, however, it is not entirely clear um, what has happened to people's beliefs about the legitimacy of the law. It is possible that abuses of power have negatively impacted uh, support for the law and the authorities, but it's also possible that the, the dynamics of growing propaganda, increased patriotism have um, prevented support for the law from eroding um, and we have no way of knowing and unless we go in the field. Another concern with Russia that we had the opportunity to discuss in our previous uh, podcast here is also that people may feel more fearful to express their true preferences in Russia today as a result of escalating repression.
0: Mm, very interesting. And I was interested by what you said there about Drawing on David Easton's work going back decades in, in political science about the kind of dynamics of perceptions of legitimacy and how perceptions of the legitimacy of the state and the law do update, but update quite slowly, which might suggest that if you have a context where abuses of power are increasing, then... Uh, essentially there's a lag in how public opinion responds to that. And there's a period when, you know, in a sense, the state doesn't deserve the degree of support that it is getting from the public, but it is nevertheless still getting a significant level of support, which I guess potentially kind of creates a window of opportunity for those in power to engage in greater repression and not get blamed for it, if you like, and therefore they can they can entrench themselves in power by by using this this window as as public opinion is gradually updating is that a fair characterization
1: yes yes of course there will there is naturally a lag but i think that's why protest is so important um, mm. in in authoritarian regimes and and that's why they're so worthy of study right Um, despite, you know, seeming stability uh, protest can punctuate if you like what what people call the authoritarian equilibrium on which stable autocracies um, rely and protest often um, is unpredictable their occurrence um, cannot be predicted by scholars but they are very powerful in revealing information about power like the authorities abuses of power about how widespread discontent is in society and and how easily you know stability could unravel. But to go back to your point, absolutely um normative as David Easton uh calls it normative support for the authorities and the law changes very little or much lower than specific support. And of course what autocrats like Vladimir Putin try to do is Really equate themselves um, and their administrations with the regime, right? So um, the leader and 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 the political system need to be almost, uh, you know, fused a, a single entity, so that withdrawing support from the leader is a very consequential act.
0: And what should we think about how the findings of this research travel to other countries? So you've already mentioned that the there was a particular context in Russia that made this research very relevant, where you have essentially an autocratic setting, but one in which protest is still possible. There is some space for dissent, but that that space has really now ended. So presumably we're looking here in this research in thinking about how it travels elsewhere, also to countries that are in that kind of middle zone, if you like, where they're they're not they're not fully democratic, but also they're not so autocratic that dissent is just not possible at all.
1: Right. So, um, there there are a few questions here that that we need to address. I think what underpins the argument is this assumption that. For protest authorizations to convey a helpful signal about the quality of the groups that descend, despite obstruction, they need to be perceived as, to the extent possible, random. What I mean by that is that when the authorities, as you say, always deny protest authorizations and defiant groups always descend, then... Failure to authorize a protest does not not really convey any information about the groups. It does not allow differentiation amongst them. Um, The authorities are repressive, that's it. And the groups who participate in dissent have no other choice but to protest despite repression. Um, Contrast that to a context where the authorities always grant permits and groups always protest. Again, no information about the the quality of the groups or whether they respect the law or or not um, authoritarian governments and, and and the type of updating that underlines the argument as you say may be more applicable in contexts where the authorities authorize some protests yet ban others and that allows some uncertainty to be maintained right so um this Mixing and matching of strategies also allows those in power to claim that, look, opportunities to protest remain available to the opposition, and if certain opposition groups choose to participate in protest without um, authorization, they do that for their own reasons, they aim to maximize disruption, they may aim to maximize media coverage. So that that maintains um, some, some plausibility to to their argument. Um failure to issue authorizations and participation in unauthorized protest may not be, you know, helpful, may not help, may convey helpful information about groups in electoral autocracies that are more repressive, like for example, Bahrain, Kazakhstan, Belarus, or even China, where only pro government protests are allowed and activists are routinely prevented from, from attending meetings. Um, And we also know, besides, that faced with the impossibility of obtaining protest permits, protest organizers in these regimes bypass the authorization protest altogether and participate in an authorized protest. And as I say in the paper, staging an authorized protest in these settings may not be seen as a strategy that organizers choose in order to maximize disruption, but, but truly as the only avenue that is available for those groups in order to express their grievances. I I do not anticipate um, findings to travel in those settings. Mm,
0: Yeah, okay. I suspect some listeners might be wondering about how desirable it is to conduct research like this. Uh, It it might be thought that you're kind of giving hints to authoritarian rulers as to how they can best advance their own power. Um, How would you respond to that?
1: Yes, I think that that is a great question and one that all scholars of authoritarian politics must address uh, before embarking on any kind of research. What I would like my work to do, both through the paper that we're discussing today, the, the grant that supports and indeed today's podcast, is to raise awareness um, of the many ways in which authoritarian governments use the law to stifle dissent. I think doing so is important because legal strategies of repression like the ones reviewed um, today are truly insidious. Autocrats pass legislation that um, stifles dissent, um, they ban protest, and, and there's very little outcry, um, or the, there is less outcry comparatively than when they, um, they arrest individuals who, who protest, for example. We need better data, we need good evidence um, on how protest authorizations are used, on when the autocrats ban protest, and we need those to you know feed to non-governmental organizations, um you know, organizations that monitor civic space developments so that they can you know rely on them to, to make a, a concrete and compelling case of, of how abusive these regimes are. And I would even go a step further, and I would say questions about respect for human rights, the right to assembly, and expression need to be part of you know conversations with these governments at you know at an international level, at an intergovernmental level. These questions need to be brought up. I would say this is directly relevant for how we study these regimes. The the project also suggests that you know the effectiveness of preventive repression is contingent on people's beliefs about the law. If anything, the work suggests that the more the authorities abuse the law, the less convincing they, they will be to to their own populations. Uh, findings also show very clearly that engaging in, in preventing repression dampens support for the authorities who, who do so, and it also dampens the credibility of the law. But more broadly, I would say it is important to engage in questions that inform and improve our understanding of authoritarian politics and making sure that findings reach the appropriate audiences um, is the task of of researchers.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. It's a really important point, really, really important point. Um, Final question. I I mentioned at the start that the UK has been introducing new legislation that is uh, increasingly restrictive of protest. Now, clearly, your research was on Russia, uh, very, very different context. uh, And there's presumably no direct read across. But do you have any reflections on uh, what we see in the UK at the moment, uh, based on your research and your experience of the Russian case?
1: yes so again i would like to start by saying i am not an expert on you know in democratic politics um but i think developments in the uk are a cause for concern i think the public order act and, and especially the serious disruption preventive uh, prevention orders um have the potential to significantly limit the freedom of of demonstrators, for example, by allowing courts to prevent individuals from attending protests at all, even before those those take place, or even before our organization has started. Another concern, I think, you know, from from comparative scholarship, is that the um, the new Public Order Act has the potential to create a, what we call a chilling effect, so impacting not only those targeted by it but all potential demonstrators from taking to the streets because of, of fears or concerns about the kinds of violent protest policing that it, it makes possible. And, and of course, you know, we've seen this time and time again in, in authoritarian politics, vague provisions um, allow those in power, you know, be it the police or the authorities, um, great discretion when it comes to defining what constitutes potentially disruptive protesting. And I think those those are important things to keep in mind. And I should say also, you know, we focus today's discussion on authoritarian politics, but authoritarian governments are not the only ones who use the law to restrict protest or people's rights. Actually, the literature, the academic scholarship on protest policing began... Uh, from the study of protest policing in uh, Western Europe and North America. Um, I would say under escalated force policing, which was prevalent up until until the 70s, um, the authorities would regularly deny protest permits for for organizers. Um, Martin Luther King, for example, was repeatedly arrested for... um, participating in protest um, without a permit and permits were also denied against those um, protesting. the um, They were in Vietnam in the United States, for example. So it is not just a story about autocracies yet. It would be an omission not to say that in contrast to electoral autocracies, democracies do have institutions, courts, um, human rights commissions, whose job is to promote and, and hold human rights ideals. So people And democracies have the opportunity to to appeal, to express their discontent, to to object to violent protest policing, and challenge abuses of power in ways that people living in autocracies do not. And, And that is a fundamental difference.
0: Katerina, thank you so much. We've gone a bit over our time here, but I think it's been well worth it. This has been a fascinating discussion of a really brilliant piece of research, I think. I mean, in political science terms, it's really at the cutting edge and a wonderful example for any of the students uh, listening to the podcast of how to do Top notch political science research, but also the the engagement with um, questions of real world political significance is so great here as well. So, thank you, Katerina, very, very much. We've been looking at the article Preventive Repression and Public Opinion in Electoral Autocracies by Katerina Tertichnaya, which is forthcoming in World Politics. Given that the article is still forthcoming, we can't link to it in the show notes as we usually do, but listeners will be able to look out for it very soon. And I should say the reason we haven't waited for the article to come out before doing this episode is that very sadly for all of us here, uh, Katrina will be moving on from UCL after the summer to take up a wonderful new post at the University of Oxford, uh, of there. Yeah. I'll try that again, <clears throat> get the word Oxford right. Um, and I should say that the reason we haven't waited for the article to come out before doing this episode is that very sadly for all of us here, Katrina will be moving on from UCL after the summer to take up a wonderful new post at the University of Oxford. So let me just say, Katrina, that you have been a most fantastic colleague over the last few years. We'll all miss your immense insight, your conscientiousness and your great kindness. And um, We wish you all the best at Oxford. But we also hope that you'll come back and visit visit us from time to time as well. So thank you and best wishes for the future. Next week, we have a special episode with Professor Albert Wheel after a hugely illustrious and varied academic career. Alistair, Alistair. wow, that's an innovation. After a hugely illustrious and varied academic career, Albert is moving gently into well earned retirement. So, we'll be exploring some of the themes in his research over the years, which has spanned subjects from social contract theory to priority setting in healthcare policy and everything else pretty much in between. Remember to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you use. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could take a moment of time to rate or review us too. I'm Alan Rennick. This episode was researched by Alice Hart and produced by Eleanor Kingwell Bannum. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.